Welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, Overtime Edition, session number two. Now this shows what we like to bring our Patreon subscribers every other week or so. Uh, in these episodes, we present features uh, that uh, from going on in the month of October or whatever month we're in in 1970-71. Uh, these are things we just didn't have time to include in our regular weekly podcasts. Uh, we go a little deeper into some subjects and we try to feature the writing of some of the best hockey writers of the time or talk about some of the more popular players from that period 50 years ago. First up this time is a profile of a player I followed through junior hockey in the Niagara area and then on to a fine National Hockey League career. This guy uh, was profiled by the Philadelphia Inquirer's Bruce Keaton and we have the gist of what he and Doug Favell talked about in this piece right here. Every job has its inherent hazards. People know that. Coal miners in the 70s, 60s got black lung. Deep sea divers get the bends. Demolition men sometimes get blown up. Hockey coaches, baseball managers, they get fired. Goalies get ulcers. National Hockey League goalies... <laughs> They get big league ulcers all the time. Old timers figure today's goalies have a soft touch. It used to be that the goalies who are around long enough to get ulcers were the lucky ones because the others usually ended up maimed in some manner first. In 1970, Doug Favell was only 25 years old and he uh, tends to agree with the old timers. Doug doesn't think that goaltending in the NHL in 1970 is all that tough, amazingly enough. Maybe it's because Douglas Favell Jr. cannot ever remember a time since his seventh birthday when he wanted to be anything else other than an NHL netminder. Doug told Keaton that uh, most guys become National Hockey League goalies or goalies of any description, like myself, uh, because they can't skate well enough to play anything else. Well, with me, Doug says, it was Harry Lumley. In case you didn't know, Harry Lumley guarded the Nets for the Toronto Maple Leafs, Boston Bruins, and Detroit Red Wings in the NHL of yesteryear. That is to say, in the 1940s and 1950s. The man they call Apple Cheeks also was one heck of a lacrosse player, and he played in the Ontario Senior Lacrosse League, along with a St. Catharines resident, by the name of Douglas Favell Sr. Doug says, My dad brought him home for dinner once, and he became an idol of mine. I decided right then that I wanted to be a goalie, and I've never had any second thoughts since. And now that he's making a fine living as an NHL goalie, why would he? In his short time in the National Hockey League, just since 1967, Doug has won a reputation as somewhat of a flake. That's uh, sort of a catch-all description. It doesn't really do him justice. But he won it, this title, in honest fashion. He still says what he thinks, and he says it whenever he wants. That, considered a flaw in character, makes Doug Favell, if not a flake, at least a man unlike others who play the sport that he loves and makes a living at. Could you go a whole day without repressing a single thought? Ever had the urge to tell the boss just what you really think about his pet project? Well, Doug Favell skates through life that way. 
Doug even ignores the hockey tradition that says goaltending is the most pressure-packed, demanding job in sports. Nothing about it is tough for me, says Doug. Sure, it's a responsible position. The guys are relying on you and you don't want to let them down. But I don't get sick uh, before or after a game, uh, much like the legendary Glenn Hall, who was known to throw up before every game, although that is sometimes considered an old wives' tale. Doug says, hockey is fun for me. What isn't fun for Doug, however, is when he reads that the Flyers' front office is now crediting him with a brand new attitude this year with some kind of newfound maturity. This metamorphosis has been attributed either to the freak accident late last year in which he backed into a skate on a floor and severed an Achilles tendon, or it's attributed to his marriage a year ago and the birth last month of a daughter. Now, Favell scoffs at both of these explanations. I'm no more mature than I was last year, he says. And I don't think my attitude has changed a bit. Marriage hasn't changed me, and the accident couldn't have. It never even crossed my mind that I wouldn't play again or that it would hinder me in any way. So how come coach Vic Stasiak and general manager Keith Allen say he's changed? Well, Doug, of course, has thoughts on that. Doug says maybe last year... When I got hurt while we were in second place and then we ended up missing the playoffs, maybe then they began to realize that I was of some value to the club. Maybe they're thinking about me is what's changed. Favell, because he never learned to pull his punches, does not attempt in any way to hide the disappointment he felt last season when he was relegated to second fiddle status with the Flyers, playing only the odd game. But he makes it equally clear right now that he has great respect for the abilities of his Flyers netminding colleague, that one Bernard Perrant. Doug says, we're different kinds of goalies. We play different styles. Bernie tends to cut down the angle on the shooter. I try to make the shooter think he has an opening and then attempt to take the opening away from him. Basically, I depend more on my reflexes. Of course, that begs the question, well, just how good are those reflexes? Doug says, they're the best on the team. And his nerves, truthfully, now, doesn't he ever get a little bit jumpy about playing goal in the NHL? And Doug said, as long as I have the mask, nope, I'm good. Without the mask, I'm not even going on the ice. It wasn't all that long ago that masks were considered more than somewhat of a sissified uh, addition to the game by some NHL players, a group of men who exalt their ability to absorb punishment for better or for worse sometimes. But Favell is just too honest to pretend he's a Spartan. He wants you to believe only that he is, quote, one of the best goalies in the NHL. And you almost have to believe him. Doug Favell, the honest Iceman, one thing he never learned to do is lie. Our next segment, this is a fun little exercise provided to us by the Buffalo Courier Express. That paper produced a huge welcome to the Sabres section as the new National Hockey League team prepared to host the Montreal Canadiens in the first NHL regular season contest to be played in Memorial Auditorium affectionately known as the Odd. Part of the section was a series of factoids under the headline, Did You Know? These were distributed throughout the special section, not in any particular order. 
and we thought they might make some interesting listening. Please keep in mind, these are facts from October 1970. Now, we haven't fact-checked them, mainly because I wanted to present them exactly as they appeared in the Buffalo Courier Express in an edition, which was uh, an attempt to introduce uh, the possibly less sophisticated hockey fan in Buffalo to the NHL game. So here we go with, did you know? Preface each of these little factoids with the phrase, did you know? Did you know the Chicago Blackhawks' Stan Makita is a four-time winner of the Art Ross Trophy for leading the National Hockey League in scoring? His other awards include the Most Valuable Player and Lady Bing Memorial Trophies for consecutive years in 1966-67 and 67-68. Did you know that former Buffalo Bisons forward Bill Sweeney was the only player to lead the American Hockey League in scoring three consecutive seasons and the only player to score more than 100 points in three straight years. Chicago Blackhawks goalie Tony Esposito, brother of the Bruins Phil Esposito, holds the Chicago club record for most shutouts for one season by a goalkeeper with 15. It looks like 13 in the printing here, but it was 15. And there's no mention of any type of uh, NHL record that that number represents. Did you know that the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup three times in a row? On two separate occasions. They reigned supreme in the playoffs from 1946-47 through the 48-49 season and then again from 1961-62 through 63-64. Did you know that the longest Stanley Cup game in the history of the Ice Classic was six overtimes in a game between Detroit and Montreal in 1936? The guy who ended the game, I, by the way, I think was a fellow by the name of Mud Brunado. Of the 100 or more players who participated in the National Hockey League games in the 1960 season, only three were born outside of Canada, and none of those three were named. And speaking of birthplaces, do you know where New York Rangers Walter Kachuk was born? In the tiny little hamlet at that time, of South Porcupine, Ontario. And if you know exactly where that is, I do now because I've been there, but at that time I hadn't. I had no idea where South Porcupine is. I figured maybe they lived in igloos up there. And still with birthplaces, Paul Popeil, who's a former Buffalo Bison, now on the Detroit Red Wings roster, was born in Solstead, Denmark. Did you know that Andy Hebbenton, who started out with St. Boniface Canadians, later spent several seasons with the New York Rangers and Boston Bruins, once held the NHL record for playing in 630 consecutive games. Did you know that Pat Stapleton of the Chicago Blackhawks tied a National Hockey League record with six assists by a defenseman at Chicago on March 30th 1969. Do you know whose record he tied? Was set by Babe Pratt of the Toronto Maple Leafs on January 8th, 1944. Did you know that Orlin Curtinback, who was named recently and now is the first captain of the Vancouver Canucks, he made NHL stops in New York, Boston, and Toronto, 
But Orlin is also famous for being the Western Hockey League's Rookie of the Year in the 1957-58 season, playing for the Vancouver Canucks. More neat birthplace facts, Marcel Paillet and Jacques Plante are both former goalkeepers for the American Hockey League Buffalo Bisons. Both made it to the NHL and both were born in Shawinigan Falls, Quebec. And René Marcel Pronovo, everybody knows who Marcel Pronovo is, although at that time, in 1970, we didn't know Marcel was a form future coach of the Sabres. Marcel was born in the tiny town of Lac La Tortue, Quebec, and if I butchered that pronunciation, please accept my most humble apologies. The Courier Express section says, did you know that a goaltender has never scored a goal in National Hockey League history? true in 1970 clint benedict of the old ottawa senators who was one of the first netminders probably the first in the nhl to wear a face mask recalls that he once scored a goal in an exhibition game but never did so in a regular season match did you know that the largest crowd in national hockey league history was 20,004 those fans stormed into the 17,100-seat Chicago Stadium on Sunday, February 23, 1947 to see the Bruins whip the Blackhawks 9-4 and the Chicago Fire Department was not pleased. Did you know that there are three National Hockey League players who share the league record for scoring five points in one period? I'll bet you couldn't name them because I couldn't until I read this. They are Max Bentley and Les Cunningham of the Chicago Blackhawks and the effervescent Leo Labine, who was with the Boston Bruins when he did it. Dickie Moore, who formerly held the National Hockey League scoring record with 96 points in one season, retired for three seasons before making a comeback with the St. Louis Blues in 1967. Now, now I have to add a little something here, because whoever put these into the Courier Express that day completely forgot that Dickie made a comeback with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Didn't go well. Nicky's Dickie's knees were not up to it, but he did make a comeback with the Leafs before eventually going to the Blues in that first season of expansion. And the final factoid that we have, Yuha Marka Weeding, former Buffalo Bisons, is now up uh, with the New York Rangers. He was born in Uleaborg, Finland, but he grew up in Sweden and then learned and played his junior hockey in Canada. Uh, this next piece is is uh, something uh, I really wanted to do. It's uh, again from the Courier Express special section, welcoming the Sabers, and it's written by the voice of the Sabers, the great Ted Darling. This is one of those times when I wish I had the talent that my son had, my son Andy, who produces our podcast. Andy uh, did a lot of work in comedy uh, over the years with uh, Second City and uh, Tim Sims Theater in Toronto. And Andy is a talent for imitating voices with an uncanny knack for realism. I wish I could do that because I would love to be able to read this story to you in Ted Darling's voice. Ted wrote this article for the Courier Express, and I'm just going to pass it on to you right now. 
Ted uh, begins the article by saying the question a play-by-play broadcaster is asked almost all the time is, how do you manage to know all the names? This is perhaps the most difficult part of the game, especially in hockey where the players are moving so fast and appear to come from nowhere to grab a loose puck in front of the net. The first hurdle for me was to get to know the Sabres and after a few games of watching and studying their individual styles, I could then concentrate on the opposition. In other sports, the broadcaster might have a spotter with them. However, in hockey, the game is too fast for a spotter to keep up with the play-by-play man, and you must be able to identify the player immediately, almost instantaneously. Identification of the players is only part of the preparation on the day of the game. On that game day, I will start to prepare my notes in the afternoon. First, I'll go over the results of the games played the night before and put all my statistics up to date. If we're playing a team I haven't seen in a couple of weeks, then I'll have to check to see if they have a winning streak going for them or if they're in a slump and get that all up to date. When there were just six teams in the National Hockey League, it was pretty easy to keep right up to date. Now with 14 teams and each team playing 78 games, it keeps you hopping to stay abreast of the complete picture. A few hours before game time, I call the coach at the hotel where the team is staying and uh, find out who's playing that night, if there are individuals standing out for the team at the moment, and if he's got any injuries to report. As far as the Sabres are concerned, I'll have attended the light workout on the morning of the game and a quick check will put me up to date. An hour and a half before the game, I will be at the arena talking to the opposing coach again and checking his final lineup changes. This is when I ask him to go over the lines he'll be using and the pairings of the defensemen. Then it's off to the Sabres dressing room and a talk with Punch Imlac to see if he has any last minute changes. I may find out who's not dressing and arrange with that player to be a guest on the intermission portion of the game. At 7.30, both teams go on the ice if it's an 8 o'clock start for the pregame warm-up, and that's when I block everything else out of my mind and concentrate on studying the opposition. In many cases, I will know a majority of the players already, so I'll go over the ones that I'm not quite familiar with and repeat the names and numbers as often as possible during the 15 minutes they're on the ice during the warm-up. Most of the time, you familiarize yourself with noting uh, how a player skates, his physical build, or the way his hair is cut, but now it's becoming more difficult because, of course, many of the players are now wearing helmets, and then you must identify them by number only. At 7.45, the teams leave the ice for the next 15 minutes until game time, and I'll study the lineups and check commercial content for each period. The stopwatch is a valuable uh, accessory to a play-by-play broadcaster. Uh, It's as valuable as a hockey stick is to a player. Commercials are usually on tape and must be played back at the radio station remotely. I am not able to hear the commercials, but I know their length, and when I give a cue, the operator rolls the commercial and I start the stopwatch. After 20 or 30 seconds, depending on the length of the commercial, I start broadcasting again and set the radio picture for the listeners. 
By 8 p.m., all the preparation is completed as we get ready for two and a half hours of hockey broadcasting. Every play-by-play broadcaster has his own style, and you got to pace yourself to create the excitement of the particular game. Hockey is an explosive sport with goals coming at any time, so you must be ready and right on top of the play once the attacking team gets inside the opposition's blue line. It is important to give a complete audio picture of the play, but not too much so as to confuse a radio audience. With all these thoughts running through your mind, you wait for the opening cue a few seconds after 8 p.m. and settle down to bring all the excitement and glamour of an NHL hockey broadcast to the thousands listening over WGR Radio 55 in Buffalo. Here's a bit in the Minneapolis Star thanks to hockey reporter Mike Lamy about new North Star's Jude Druin, who talks about his time in the Canadians organization and what it meant for him to move to Minnesota. When the North Stars first played the Montreal Canadiens this season, Bobby Russo and Ted Harris, who came along with Jude Druin from Montreal, said for them it was going to be just another NHL contest. Not for Jude Druin, though. 22-year-old Jude Druin is not so far removed from his childhood days that he can't recall always wanting to play for the Canadians with the big red C on the front of his uniform. Jude was so anxious to be a Canadian that he joined the Montreal organization at the tender age of 13, but he got to wear that sweater only 12 times in the NHL. But when the Canadians played the uh, North Stars for the first time, he was out to prove that Minnesota got the best of that trade that sent several players to to Montreal. Jude says, I was never really happy in Montreal. Over there, if you make a mistake, you don't see the ice again. When I was with the Montreal Voyageurs, which was a farm team of the Canadians in the American Hockey League, I got more publicity than any of the Canadians. And then the Canadians called me up for three games and I don't play. Druin scored 106 points in the American Hockey League in 69-70 for the Voyageurs. He was named the league's most valuable player, rookie of the year, and everybody in Montreal was calling him the next uh, great superstar to come along. But he didn't play when he was called up to Canadians. Druin says, I asked Ruel, that's the Canadian's coach, why he called me up if I don't play. I guess they don't like this kind of talk. I say what I think, even to Sam Pollock, and that's Montreal's general manager. Ruel thinks he's doing you a favor by letting you play. He says there are lots of kids ready to take your place. Jude went on to say, I turned pro at 18. I had a terrific camp. I was a leading port scorer, point scorer, that is, during the exhibition games, two more than John Bellable. But when I went to sign, they said, sign this, go to the minors, or go back to junior hockey. What could I do? I wanted to be a Canadian. I signed the contract. Drew was like most young Quebec boys. He wanted to play for the Canadians, and he says, I was out of my mind the first time I put on that uniform. He played nine games in the 68-69 season and three in 69-70. Jude says, but things are different today. In training camp at Winnipeg with Minnesota this year, Drew was blasted by North Star's general manager, Ren Blair, for what Blair called an indifferent and ineffective attitude and play. Oddly enough, 
Jude agreed with Blair and accepted being sent down to the B team for a week from the North Stars main camp. Druin told Lamey, I know they were expecting more than I was given, but my wife was expecting a baby in Houston, Texas, and I guess I really wasn't all there. Today, I appreciate the criticism. I know I'm small, maybe I'm faster because of it, but he says, I watch Russo and almost never does he get a solid body check, so I want to play like that. Bobby, being a center too in the past helps me because he's always backing me up. Juin learned at least two things in the Montreal organization. Not to skate in big circles and to lead the team up the ice with the puck. He does almost a pirouette in making sharp turns, keeping his body low and often using his stick as a brace. Jude Juin talking about his time with Montreal, how he's happy to be in Minnesota, and we wonder just what kind of a future this young fellow will have. At the time I was wondering that, Jude Druin's family lived up in Dunville. They moved there in the 60s. And two of his brothers, Denis and Flo, were teammates of mine on hockey teams I played in the Dunville area. Finally this week we have a writer named Frank Janelli of the Arizona Republic and he wants to talk about what a lousy deal the uh, sale of the Phoenix Roadrunners by the Toronto Maple Leafs was. And he, his source for this article was no less than Punch Imlach, who was the Toronto Maple Leaf general manager at the time. And what this actually does is it provides us a bit of an insight into how the Leafs operated in the late 1960s and also a bit of uh, perspective from the uh, view of a hockey writer in the United States in what is most definitely a non-hockey market. Ginelli writes at the siege of discord between the Phoenix Roadrunners and Toronto Maple Leafs with local management maintaining accusations of unfulfilled pledges may never be resolved to anybody's satisfaction. Former Toronto coach and general manager Punch Imlach's own story, the book Hockey is a Battle, touches on conditions that brought the franchise to Phoenix, one that starts requiring big payoffs in the 1970-71 season. The levy of $100,000 a year over the next four is one reason that the Roadrunners' present situation is tender at best. The club has to make money now because that's when the $100,000 a year payments are being taken out. They were on a free ride uh, last year. The club has to make money or the stockholders take a bigger bath than they ever dreamed they would. Imlac labels the sale to Phoenix a lousy deal. Punch wrote in his book, the reason I didn't like the deal is that we'd already sold the Rochester club too and we're going to lose another 20 players out of the system in the expansion draft, meaning we were getting stripped down pretty badly for players. It was okay for Stafford Smythe, the Toronto club president. He and other owners got the money, but I built up that farm system and I didn't like to see it cut by 70% in that way. I was a guy who had to find the players for the hockey games. Himlack asked Stafford Smythe, what you get for, for the Victoria team? It was Victoria of the WHL that was sold to the Phoenix interest. Smythe said, I got $500,000. $100,000 the first year, and then starting four years from now, $100,000 a year for four more years. 
Punch says, I think the deal that Smythe made selling Victoria to Phoenix was the worst deal that Toronto made in the 11 years I was with the club. The conditions were so vague that arguments will continue until the end of the contract about who's doing what. A suit was later filed by the Phoenix Hockey Club against the Maple Leafs, and at uh, this time was still unsettled. They were charging that the Leafs were not living up to the agreement of the sale uh, transaction in which they would provide players to the Phoenix Club. Imlach said that one of his last recommendations was to let Phoenix have the club outright and just forget about it. It has been said that when uh, I was fired, Punch tells us, in the spring of 1969, I left the club in bad shape for hockey players. Well, this forgets it, the decision to sell the hockey clubs and all the players on them, Rochester and Vancouver, was not Imlach's. Imlac was left with the mechanics, but the decisions were Stafford Smice. All it was, Stafford was trying to make a buck, and he did well. He sold Rochester to the Vancouver interest for $400,000 cash, and then Phoenix for whatever the Leafs eventually get out of it, but it's going to be more than uh, Punch Imlac got his severance. Imlac makes an excellent point when he says if the Leafs still own those teams, they would be in a position to trade fringe players to expansion clubs for future draft choices the way Montreal and Boston have done, ensuring that for years they'd always have a corner on good young ones coming up and would even been able to trade even more older players for future draft choices. You would have seen guys like maybe Guy Lafleur who's coming up or Rick McLeish or Reggie Leach in a Toronto uniform instead of playing elsewhere for established teams in the NHL. So that's how Punch Imlach assesses the sale of the Victoria Hockey Club of the Western Hockey League out to Phoenix and the damage it did to the Toronto Maple Leafs. And if you ever looked at the history of the Maple Leafs team and saw the drastic fall-off that occurred after they won the Stanley Cup in 1967, it's not hard to figure out that this team was sold down the river, but not by Punch Imlach, like many of us uh, thought at that time, but by Stafford Smythe when he stripped the organization of a farm system that was not only producing solid National Hockey League players, but also the types of fringe players that would be available to stock the uh, National Hockey League expansion clubs. This hurt the least badly. It tied Jim Gregory's hands when he was trying to make trades. And as we see, Jim would make a few deals and make some great draft picks. But imagine what he could have done had he been able to have the resources that the Bruins and Canadians were able to use to acquire players and draft picks. And that's our second edition of Overtime, uh, folks. Thanks very much uh, to our subscribers who are getting these special broadcasts. And we'll be back very soon with another edition of uh, nice, interesting uh, stories that aren't getting into the weekly podcasts and are only available to the subscribers. On, the, on that note, we will see you next time.